Well, that song was Papa was a Rolling Stone by The Temptations. It's going to introduce my next guest whose resume is stacked. Party people, former athletic director for the Michigan State Spartans, led the nation's 16th largest athletics department with 300 employees and 750 student athletes and a $54 million budget. Brought three future Hall of Fame coaches in Nick Saban, Tom Izzo, Ron Mason for the men's hockey team, for all those that don't know who that is, uh, built and staffed one of the country's first student athletic um, ath- athlete academics support centers for 27 sports teams and that's only five years party people of his resume mr dr merit norvell thank you so much for being on the sports bar dr norvell you're welcome yeah it is a pleasure i was really excited about this so it's so nice to have a celebrity on here Yeah, good. How's uh? You just told me uh before we started recording uh how hot it is over there. You're in, still in East Lansing, right? What? I said I, you're still in um you're still in East Lansing. You told me uh. Yeah, we're still in East Lansing. Yeah. Uh, on the river. Yep. It's, been here, so I have. It is. It is beautiful. <laughs> it is. How, are you guys still hitting some golf balls into the lake? Yeah, when I get a chance. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Yeah, that view is stunning. It is gorgeous. Um, normally on the sports bar, we actually um, talk about how I met the guest um, of my choosing here. So um, I don't know if you want to say it or if you want me to say it. I mean, you're the guest. Well, so. you know, I was trying to think about that. It seems to me that we met probably, what, five or six years ago? Um, before you came to Lansing. Yes. I think uh, Aaron introduced us. Uh, we went to a place where you were working. And I think was that when that's where, that's where we met, wasn't it? Was that where we met? We met at Terranea? Yeah. The resort? Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. I thought it was so, prior to that for some I weird reason. But, referring to you as his sister. Yeah, yeah, no, he we are definitely close. He's my brother from another mother, that's for sure. I love that I loved your son. He's an incredible, incredible gift, um, actually, to to my life. Um, I don't know if he told you how we met. It's going to be on, He's obviously he's recording after you, but like, I don't know if you, did he tell you how we met? Uh, no, he never did. Okay. Um, we actually met at a bar and he just saw me in an outfit and was just like, oh, you look like you could be my sister. Let's go upstairs and have a drink together. And we've been friends ever since. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. That is, that is your son in a nutshell though. Like just the most outgoing person I've ever met in my life. So it's just, it's been a blessing to have him in my life. I'm very, very grateful. Blessing to have you in my life too. Um, considering I did, I had to, I looked up a lot of this stuff um, prior to talking to you about this because we didn't organically talk about this when um, I came to visit you guys in Lansing for the wedding. No, I, I didn't know. Michigan State was just one of the stops along the way, and uh, you know I started off uh, as a director of community services in Madison, Wisconsin, after I got my graduate degree. Then I became assistant vice chancellor of student affairs back when the first black 
two strikes. That was followed by the uh, Vietnam strike. Then I left and became the uh, assistant dean of the graduate school at the University of Wisconsin. And then I went into the private sector and worked 18 years for IBM. Uh, my final job with IBM was national manager of market support in Washington, D.C. And then I came back and retired. And then I got hired by Michigan State uh, as the athletic director. Uh, was here for uh, five years and then left, became the executive vice president for uh, uh, the worldwide practice of sports and education for DHR International, which is the fifth largest executive search in the country. Do you mind? Do you mind speaking a little bit more on that? Because I know that's why you left um, your AD position at Michigan State. Correct? Was to uh, to work for this amazing organization. Uh, DHR in Chicago. They allowed me to live here, so we had just built this house here on the river. So uh, I decided to do that. And then uh, I did that for 15 years and then uh, uh, became retired from that and became the executive director for the National Association for Coaching, Equity, and Development, which is really a national membership organization of uh, black basketball and football coaches nationally. And, you know, we fight the battle. We advocate for jobs. Uh, we do training. Uh, and uh, fight this whole battle of trying to make sure that we get more coaches get an equitable chance to, to be employed. So I spent a lot of time working with coaches, a lot of time working with college presidents, a lot of time working with the NCAA, and, and a lot of time working with each other. So oh, That's uh, such a blessing uh, to... It's been a, uh, it's been a fun time. It's been a great... Uh, 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 a great... Uh, uh, Life experience, and, uh, and I'm just sitting back now, kind of enjoying it. I'm involved with a black young men's mentoring group here in town, uh, where young black men from 15 to from from the eighth grade to the 12th grade, and we call that turning point of, of Lansing and converting young young boys into men. And uh, I'm chairman of the. Uh, uh, National Kidney Foundation Mid-Michigan Committee because I'm a kidney transplant and I made a commitment to do something there and then working with black coaches and so I'm still I'm still pretty active in a lot of different areas. I mean you have a lot on your plate. I didn't realize how busy you are so this is a blessing for me to be able to get some time from from you. Um, <laughs> what, is, what, what does that entail? as far yeah, no, I, I love the fact that they came to visit you, um, especially during these times. It's got to be rough, right? Um, living in living in COVID and which kind of uh, kind of brings us to our next my next question. Um, I'm glad we organically were able to do it. COVID obviously is taking over everything. Um, it's magnified, I think, like what's going on in sports, what's going on just in people's lives in general. Um, as far as, I mean, you know, I had to, I had to bring this up. I mean, the big 10 is not playing. They're pushing, they, some, some are pushing back their seasons. Some conferences are pushing back their seasons. Some conferences are canceling their seasons, postponing their seasons. Well, I kind of, I kind of, uh, uh, COVID has just really changed, the, uh, the personality of the workplace. Of course. Okay? I remember when, uh, I was with IBM. 
uh, back in the early 80s. And uh, the PC was introduced to the marketplace. And uh, the PC dramatically changed the way people work. And uh, uh, we were kind of a late arrival into the, into the PC market space because we were really interested in big iron because that's, that's where the profitability was. But uh, the uh, chairman of the board would go out and give speeches at these colleges and universities and he would get criticized for uh, ignoring the, the, the PC marketplace. And so schools were coming to us saying, you know, we'd like to upgrade our technology infrastructure, but we can't afford to do it. So what we did is we entered the PC marketplace and developed a special business group to design those and work with colleges and universities. And we called it Academic Information Systems, ACES. And what we did was that uh, uh, we made local colleges and universities dealers. And we sold the PCs to them at a discount. They in turn remarketed back to the students and to the faculty and uh, and discounts and it changed the whole technological structure of colleges and universities it changed the structure of the way people work in offices it allowed people to work from home it allowed people to work portably and so uh, COVID uh, has changed our lives in many ways in that we have now probably reverted more than any time ever I can remember into communications electronically. I spent a lot of time, a lot of meetings with a lot of different groups uh, uh, with Zoom, just like we're doing right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I belong to a men's group that has about 35 or 40 professional guys in it. We meet once a month uh, at a major hotel and two guys buy breakfast for the other. Well, we can't do that now. Right. So we just Zoom, okay? And for two hours. So it... Uh, uh, kids are going to school from home. Uh, a lot of people are staying home to work. And so I think the new normal is going to be a lot different going down the road than what we, we see it today, simply because the circumstances of our life and what we're allowed to do or not do. So, uh, COVID uh, uh, has affected my life to the extent that I used to travel quite a bit and I don't travel hardly at all now. And Zoom has really made that convenient, so that's kind of good. I like that. I don't have to spend all the time in airplanes and in automobiles and driving. Uh, and, uh, you know, we still, I still go to church on Zoom, you know, Sunday morning. So, oh, that's a coffee in your pajamas and you're sitting in front of the preacher. You know? <laughs> <laughs> My sister said, you don't drink coffee during the service, do you? I said, yeah. And I said, well, nobody can see me. And she said, well, Jesus can. <laughs> <laughs> you know what you should, you know what you should tell her is that, hey, Jesus sees that I'm going to church. That's good enough. So I say what? I, I said, you should tell her that Jesus sees you going to church. That's good enough. Right. I don't think right, he, I, yeah, I don't think that he cares that you're drinking coffee in the middle of service. <laughs> So it's, it's made a difference, you know, I, uh, uh, I've got a good friend, uh, in, uh, who's in Chautauqua, New York, which is kind of an upstate resort area, bought a house, built a house over there. And we usually go there in the summer and play golf. Now we're trying to figure out whether I can do it or not, because in New York, stopping people from out of state coming in 
to the state. Right, right. And so may or may not be able to do that. So, you know, there's some fun things that we do that we just aren't able to do. You know, Jay, my oldest son, is a head football coach, and season's coming up. Now they've canceled that. So I usually spend quite a bit of time in Nevada watching football games and, and on TV. So it's uh, so it'll be interesting to see what happens with the America psyche this fall, where they've always been accustomed to that emotional release through football games, you know, uh, uh, tailgate parties, morning games. When I was athletic director, I used to tell my uh, staff at Michigan State, I said, you know, sports is, uh, we're the drug of choice. And, and uh, when we're good, they love us. And when we're bad, they hate us. <laughs> so let's make sure when they come, they enjoy themselves. And when they leave, they enjoy themselves because you know, they go to local restaurants, they spend money, they buy license and logo products that we make. Uh, they come in on Friday night, they stay over on Saturday night. And a lot of, a lot of towns, college towns in particular, uh, heavily depend upon revenue that comes from uh, major college football games. And they make their money for the year. Bars, a lot of bars make their money for the year during football season. So who knows what the... Uh, I can tell you that every athletic director knows what his financial impact is upon the community. And when that goes away, uh, that really becomes a serious issue with the local business people. What do you think? I mean, obviously in, in Michigan, where you are currently, it's going to take a huge economic dip um, just because of what you just said. What do you think about other conferences as far as what they could possibly be doing in order to, you know, further their season or at least help well, out I, their season. I think, that, I think that, you know, uh, you get, you get uh, schools like Clemson, for example, not a very big town. Okay. Auburn, Alabama, not a very big town. And they're totally dependent upon uh, the school. They're totally dependent on the number of people, hundred thousand people who come in there every weekend. Mm -hmm. uh, to buy and spend money in that community. When that factor goes away, that becomes a major issue. And now you've got COVID restrictions on top of that where local people aren't going because they've been restricted. So I don't know. It's, uh, I think that, you know, you're talking hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars in terms of the total cost to all of these communities across the country. You got airline travel, you got a lot of things. So you brought um we we just see the tip of the iceberg now as a result of this. You brought up a really good point as far as, you know, everybody being able your communities are relying on hundreds of thousands of people, you know, coming into their city, their small little town or whatever and and funneling them basically with money. Do you some um some stadiums and some teams are saying we're going to have fans I if the shoe were on the other foot and you had control over this, would you be like no, we're doing everything that science basically tells us and we're restricting everything in order to play well i think that there's a lot of answers to that question and uh, let me just kind of pick a couple of them i think that uh from a coach's perspective they want to play okay now uh, and because football you only play 12 games a year and the other the rest of the year you practice okay and so there's a lot of effort 
and a lot of preparation that goes into those 12 games. And you've got kids uh, who are seniors who will never get this opportunity back. Uh, they're not good enough to go on and play at the next level. And uh, uh, a lot of guys, you know, my son in particular felt that he had a really good team this year. And uh, they're not going to be able to do anything about that until spring, maybe, and maybe not until fall of 2021. Right. So that's an issue. They, they, I can tell you, having been in this business a long time, there are a lot of college presidents who really don't care much about football. Okay, it's something that they have to uh, they have to contend with. Uh, it's it's one of the major vehicles that they have that connects them to their constituency across the world. And but they know two things about football. Number one, it can get you a lot of fame and fortune. Two, it can get you fired. Okay, <laughs> so important to them to pay attention to football because it's a major revenue stream for their institution. And uh, so now all of a sudden, COVID comes along and they've got all these issues, uh, all these intangibles hanging out that nobody has answers for. You know, you've got testing once or twice a month, once or twice a week. You've got the cost of testing. You've got travel. You got to make arrangements for your football team. Uh, a lot of kids aren't going to class, so they're staying in their in their apartments and taking their class through Zoom. Now, from a protection point of view, uh, being on a football team today is probably the safest place you can be. You know, going back home is probably not all that safe. And who knows what the hell they're going to do when they get home? Okay. Yep. I mean, that's a that's a coach's nightmare. Once I let this guy out the front door, what's he going to do? The next 24 hours when I see them, 18, 19, 20 year old guys, you know, there's uh there's a testosterone, there's women and there's alcohol. And all of them will get you in trouble. Okay? <laughs> so that's it. So if you're a college president, you say, well, you know, I got lost revenue. I'm reimbursing people from last year, second semester for the dorm fees. They didn't think I got all these costs, all these overhead. Michigan State's got a big lawsuit. They got to pay off. He said, you know, We'll just set football over here on the side and uh, and take care of all this other stuff and hope COVID goes down and brings it in. And you got the doctors who are probably going to side with them in the first place. Now, if you talk to coaches, coaches say, well, you know, we had all these conferences. We've had all these meetings with the conference. Uh, we've had some meeting with the presidents, and then they've had a lot of meetings without us. And when they made the decision to not play anymore, first of all, it came out, we're only going to play conference games, right? Right. And uh, Nevada, for example, my son had three non-conference games. A game with Arkansas, which was worth a million five to him. Lost that. Uh, they had Cal, Cal Davis, and they had South Florida. So those games all went away. So they either had to go out and get some more games to fill those slots, or they just went with an 18 schedule. Well, after a while, president said, hey, let's just close this piece of the book for right now. And that's what they did. And they didn't share all the information with the coaches. And the coaches haven't been able to share all that information with their players because they don't know the answers. And uh, 
you know, they had this report last week that came out about myocardialitis, which is inflammation in the sac of the heart, right? Mm-hmm. And some kids had that. Other kids, the people who play football all the time who have secondary health issues, you know, asthma's one of them. I mean, you go to practice and there'll be a box out there full of inhalers. Guys will run off the field or go back out <laughs> on the field. So there are health issues associated with this. So there's just a lot of, uh, you know, my opinion is that it was something it got to be to the point where uh, presidents said, we don't want to take the risk. Uh, risk managers are saying, well, we know there's risk, but we can't tell you how much. And so why don't we just push it to the side and wait? And I think that's what happened. Okay. Um... Each individual school's response is different. Some guys are testing more than other people are, okay? Uh, some guys are letting kids dress in the locker room. And in Nevada, you can't dress in the locker room, you know? At Michigan State, you can't go in the locker room and dress. They got separate locations on campus where after practice you go, take a shower, take your equipment, and go home. So they're not even going to the locker room at this point in time. Hmm. So if you get on a plane and travel down to Indiana, you don't know what Indiana's arrangements are for you. I can tell you as for a fact, if you go into most visitors' locking rooms, uh, when you're playing football, they're like little closets, okay? And you can't put 65, 70 guys in there and, uh, and expect it to be a healthy environment. Mm-hmm. So all those things are, you know, you got hotels, you got airlines to fly on, all those things. We don't know the answers to those. And so it's... Uh, uh, yeah, you could do it, you know. Uh, it's like the chicken. You can cross to the other side of the street, but I can't guarantee you will get it, you know. Right. So basically, there's not really a solution in your in your eyes. I mean, obviously, financially, it makes sense to play, but you're risking these kids' lives and, you know, that I guess that's the other debate. I don't think there's one solution fits all. Right. I really don't. And I think it depends on the individual institution. I depend. I think it depends on the commitment uh, that the institution uh, makes. For example, you know, a president could say, "Well, uh, you guys aren't going to play this fall, but the coaches still want to work with their kids twenty hours a week." Right. You know, they're going to practice Monday, Wednesdays, and Saturdays. And they'll probably scrimmage on Saturdays. They still have to stay football ready, okay? So the president says, well, uh, since you guys aren't playing this year, I'm not going to pay for testing. You can't do that. Right. Okay? And so right now the president's are skating right now because they're, uh, they're getting federal money and state money for testing. But sooner or later that's going to run out and it's going to have to come out of the university till. So those are, those are still issues that have to be addressed by individual campus leadership. And uh, so down the road, you still got problems. Uh, it just seems like everything just stacks on more and more. There's not really like kind of an end in sight. And even with a vaccine, a possible vaccine, do you think that this problem will still persist? It's still, it'll still be here? Well, yeah, I think if they have the vaccine and the vaccine worked, there's no guarantee of that. I mean, that's, yeah. <laughs> Who, who gets the priority on the vaccine? Do you give it to 
18, 19, 21-year-old young kids, or you give it to some 45-year-old guy who's got a pre-existing condition, okay? I mean, you can't, you can't, uh, you can't uh, vaccinate 300 million people all at once. <laughs> so, you know, it, you, it, may, it may be a while. You know, you, got, you get, people are getting, you, you used to be able to get your test, and 24 hours later, they tell you whether you were negative or positive, right? Right. You get your test now, it's three weeks from now. So you figure if it's a problem with testing, it's going to be an even bigger problem with the execution of the vaccine. Right. So, uh, I, uh, I don't, uh, you know, I, I see the vaccine as a long-term solution, but I don't see the vaccine as something that's immediately going to get kids back on the field. Okay. Um, I wanted to jump uh, to all the actual good that you do. Because uh, it's a lot. It's a lot of good uh, that you bring out in your community, um, you know, in and also in the African-American community as well, in the black community as well. Um, was hoping that uh, maybe I can bend your ear and you can talk about the org- different organizations. You did allude to that earlier on, um, but you didn't go a little bit in detail. And I'd love a little detail on um, the multiple organizations that you um, are well, part of. That, you know, you get to be a certain age. And then you say, well, you know, uh, I need to get back some of this wisdom, okay? And uh, uh, one of the advantages the, the, uh, the younger black kids have today is that they've got people like me and older guys who kind of fought the battle, stood on the shoulder of other people, and got into positions where we can make a difference in their life, you know? Mm-hmm. We can hire people, Okay. We can mentor people, and uh, people can people can call and uh, uh, and ask you questions. And I have a lot of guys around the country that are now currently athletic directors that I've worked with. Uh, I ran uh, a bunch of coaching clinics for a long time for the NCAA, and so I've got head coaches out there now that uh, uh, that we trained. And so I think that you gotta. You got to remember that you are where you are because somebody else helped you. You know, we don't get there by ourselves. Right. It's about that. And then we have an obligation to reach back and uh, and tell young people, you know, you got to vote. Okay. You got to register. Here's how you do it. And uh, you got to understand that it's not just the national election that's important, but the things that affect your life are the city council, the mayor, the county commissioner, your local state legislatures, the governors. Those are the people who make the laws on a day-to-day basis that affect your lives. Right. And you need you need to know who those people are, and you need to know when you go to the pool, to the polls, that you're actually voting for somebody that's going to represent your needs and your interests. And, and we are not very good at that. We're not very knowledgeable <laughs> about that. Mm-hmm. We need to make sure our young people know that. Um, I asked him the other day, he said, you know, I, I got in a conversation with a, a business school professor mm-hmm. who was, quote, unquote, thought he was an expert in leadership, okay? And uh, and he, he said, well, you know, what, is, what do you call wisdom? I said, wisdom is nothing more than knowing the right response at the appropriate time. And I said, <laughs> and you can't do that unless you've been there. 
Right. Okay. And and uh, and that that becomes a very valuable piece of information for young people when you say, okay, you don't want to step there. That's a landmine, and you need to recognize that when you see it. Uh, so there's a lot of things that we can share with people coming up uh, that a lot of other uh, people have got. You know, a lot of white counterparts of ours have gotten that tutoring and that support as they moved up through the corporation uh, that we didn't get. And we need to be able to reach back and, uh, and hire uh, people. You know, when I got to be athletic director, I said, I want to I have three internships in my department for uh, black students who want to be in the athletic director business, athletic administration. And it was pretty easy. You just set the budget aside, tell them to hire these people, find the candidates. That's pretty simple. There's no, there's no magic about that, mm-hmm. and it's not that difficult to do. And 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 I, I I've said all along, we've said as an association, that if you really wanted to solve the black, black coaching issue in football and basketball, all college presidents would have to say is that every time we have an opening at that level, I want to make sure that the final group, the finalists for the job, is diversified. I want at least diversity candidate in there that's qualified you might not hire him but you got to interview him invest him just like the other guys and that's not happening at this point in time we had that law in place in 1964 with the civil rights act and colleges and universities uh have all written affirmative action plans they're now called diversity and inclusion plans and they submit those to the federal government, the federal government approves it because they're getting federal money. And when they have a, an opening for a dean or uh, a director, uh, they report the candidates that they looked at, racial and uh, whether they were male or female, to the federal government to demonstrate that they're exercising their diversity and inclusion plan. Mm-hmm. Well, they don't do that in sports. If, they get a, if they're looking for a head coach, the AD says, I know who I want. Therefore, I don't have to talk to all these other people. They go to the HR department, and their HR department gives them a waiver, and they classify it as an emergency hire, and therefore, they don't have to have a diversified pool of candidates. Oh, wow. That's the way they get around it. Wow. (coughs) Yeah, that's super shady. Especially when you're trying to go by the, especially when you're trying to go by the rules. That's insanely shady. Um, Last, last, last question that I got for you, because you do have just so much insane knowledge and so much wisdom, um, Dr. Norvell. Can you give us a little bit of history lesson? You gave us a little bit as far as, you know, um, the strikes um, that occurred in the 60s um, that helped, you know, kind of progress everything uh, in in sports and also in um, diversify or attempting to diversify and help. Um, the cause. I can, I, I can tie that into the whole Black Lives Matters thing. Sure, if you want, if you want, uh, even it, better. Why is it different? Yeah. Why is it different today? Well, I'll tell you why it's different. Okay. When we had the black strike, first black student strikes with Jesse Jackson and all of them in the, back in the 60s. Mm-hmm. It was a black only strike, okay? When we had the Vietnam strike, it was pretty much a white, predominantly white strike. Now, all the mothers and daddies of these kids today who were in college went through that. 
And these kids sit around the table and they hear their mom and dad talk about when they participated in the protest in college, okay? And uh, all they heard talked about it. Now they go to school, they go to integrated schools, okay? They, there's interracial dating, uh, there's interracial marriage, uh, and they look at, uh, you know, John looks at Joe just like anybody else, mm -hmm. right? And so we had this law because of the pandemic, and uh, guy gets killed on television, okay? George Floyd gets killed, and they see it. They see the guy get killed right there in front of their eyes. And they think, well, damn, you know, that could have been my friend, okay? Who, in this case, happens to be black. And then they begin to realize the injustices that are taking place. White people don't understand systemic racism. And systemic racism started when we got off the boat because this country was built on racial superiority. And they tried to, they tried to enslave the, uh, the Native Americans. It didn't work. Then they brought the indentured servants over here from England, but they were only serving for a certain amount of time, and then they were free. Well, that wasn't the case with us, okay? And so uh, we have always been the, 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 the core of the labor for this country and the profitability. So all of a sudden, people go to the streets, and black people looked out, and there were white kids right beside them. And that's what's different about this whole Black Lives Matter movement, because a lot of these, a lot of these uh, marches that you're seeing, there are more white people out there than there are black people. Okay, and so that's that's what's different about this. Now, uh, that has to go forth because it's going to start snowing pretty soon, <laughs> and, and people are going to have to figure out different strategies to continue to keep pressure on the system. And the first thing they're going to have to do is they're going to have to vote and get some new leadership in this country. Right. And uh, and they got to be active in that process because there will be people who will not feel it's necessary to vote. I don't have anything to say. Well, if you don't vote, you really don't have anything to say. Right. You, know, you take what the system gives you if you don't have anything to say. And black people need to understand they need to be anywhere and everywhere that decisions are being made to affect their lives. And, uh, and to ignore that is, uh, is basically long-term suicide. Yeah, no. Wise words from a wise man, Dr. Norvell at the sports bar. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. They're, they're shutting my Zoom meeting off from you, so I might um, disconnect. But I just want to say I really appreciate this because I know, again, you are a busy man. Yeah, this was just such a pleasure and so flipping amazing. I know. I can't wait to come and visit, actually. I need to go and hit some balls with you into, into, that, into that lake. Yeah. <laughs> As per usual, thank you so much for listening to the Sports Bar with Dr. Merritt Norvell. What a pleasure. And myself, Jihei Wiley. Dr. Norvell is not on social media, but luckily for you, party people, the Sports Bar has all of the social media accounts. So don't forget to follow us on Instagram at the Sports Bar. That is T-H-A Sports Bar. Facebook on our page titled That Sports Bar. Again, capital T-H-A Sports Bar. And of course, on Twitter at Sports Bar Gals. Also, don't forget to follow us or subscribe to us anywhere 
and everywhere you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Anchor because they let us do this for free. Also, if you're following us on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. Uh, Again, thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sports Bar with Dr. Merritt Norvell. And stay tuned because The Sports Bar is giving you a rare treat two episodes in one week. Join us as we get to talk to not one Norvell, but two Norvells this Friday as Aaron the Scrap Norvell joins the sports bar to talk some college football and then some. We'll be playing out Dr. Norvell with a classic, because he's a classic, Ain't No Mountain High Enough by Diana Ross. Again, thank you so much, guys, for listening to the sports bar party people. I'm Jihei Wiley, and we out. Deuces.